The purpose of this is so that we can make this available to guys if it's an encouragement to them. So we don't know that it will be, but a couple of guys uh, availed themselves of the last time. If you're interested in that, Tim will, will uh, make you a copy of that. You know, my topic, as you can see right there from your little notes that I gave you, is glorify our worthy God with the offering of a godly heritage. The reason I say this is because if you, look in a, if you want to look at something, if you want to see something that has value or worth, then you want, to see, you want something that is going to last. Am I right? Something that, that depreciates in value is not ultimately worthy because it's going to wear out and you're going to throw it away. Like your car. Your brand new car, you know the one that you bought? It's sitting out there in a the lot right now and you know what it's doing? It's rusting right now. It's depreciating, you know? So, you know, that's not worthy, right? I mean, it, it has value, but it's going to wear out. What is the worthiest thing? Well, here's the way we could find out. If we go to the end of time... And if we could look at the, and the search the, and figure out what's going to be still considered valuable at the end of time, then we would know what we can invest in now. It's like the stock market. If you know, if there's a new Starbucks coming, wouldn't you love to know? And if you could buy cheap stock in a new Starbucks, how many of you think you'd be interested in maybe doing a little investing? I guess I would. I mean, I would do that. But here's the thing. We have clear and definite word about what is worthwhile in the end. We have clear and definite word in the Bible. I won't take you there, but if you turn in your Bibles on Sunday afternoon and you read the book of Revelation anywhere you want to read it, maybe just chapter 5 and 6 and 7, over and over again, you have these these uh, spontaneous songs exploding in praise to Jesus Christ that say, Thou art, say it, Thou art worthy. Thou art worthy. Jesus is worthy. So I'm, I'm just here to save you a lot of time and a lot of frustration and to tell you that the worthiest thing in the universe is the Lord Jesus Christ. So to live for Him and to love Him and to invest our lives in pursuit of Christ and in loving Christ, that's the worthiest thing. Now here's the neatest thing I, I, I think I've ever thought of when it comes to sons and daughters. When you think about how good God's been to you and how faithful He's been to you, how He's forgiven you of your sin, wouldn't you like to give Him a valuable gift? If He's worthy, you know what we're going to want to do in heaven is God, the good works that we do, He says He's going to reward us with crowns. I don't know how physical that is, whatever, but we're going to take our crowns and our crowns are going to be our ability to praise God in heaven because when you get to heaven, if you get to heaven, when you get to heaven, if you get to heaven, one thing you're going to want to do more than anything else is you're going to have this incredible explosion of desire to worship the worthy one, Jesus Christ. When you see Him, you're going to fall down on your face in awe, and you're going to wish you had something to give Him. You're going to wish you had a way to worship Him. And I believe our crowns, the rewards of the deeds that we did, or perhaps even things we abstain from in this life, are going to be our wherewithal to worship Jesus. And that's what we're going to want to do throughout eternity. Now here is what I'm getting at. Here's what I would like to give Jesus at the end of my life. I would like to give him sons and daughters who love him. Grandsons and granddaughters who love him. I would like to invest my life in raising up sons and daughters and influencing grandsons and granddaughters and so forth who will go with me and gather around the banquet table in heaven with Jesus, will kneel with me at the foot of Jesus' throne in heaven, and I'll be able to look and say, there they are, my sons, my daughters, my grandsons, my granddaughters. Now, that's a, that isn't going to happen automatically. 
And I'll tell you one of the reasons why, if you look in your Bible in Ezekiel uh, chapter 14, there's a passage that I want you to see there. It will not happen automatically. As a matter of fact, it's a little bit unlikely to happen. In other words, if God is not involved in this, it will probably not happen. Well, if God is not involved in it, it won't happen. Because we're born into this world running as fast as we can away from God. And even religious people, guys, listen to this carefully now. Even good, moral, religious people are not necessarily born again. Because a lot of times we can train ourselves to do stuff that keeps us out of trouble. You know, pagans drive the speed limit, right? To stay out of trouble. It's not because they're good. It's because they don't want to get thrown in jail. or They don't want to have big fines. And that's, that can happen. Religion, you know, obviously a person who's given vent to their flesh and they're just throwing caution to the wind and they're involved in immorality and if they're involved in thefts and they're involved in illegal things and we all look at that guy and they go, he's going to hell for sure. But then you've got all kinds of people that are all full of religion religion and doing good works but the reason they're doing the good works is to maybe uh, to stay out of trouble or to make themselves feel good those people are not born again either but to have the spirit of God living in us you know how that happens when we come to personal conviction of our sin and when our heart is broken that we have broken the law of God over and over again and when we confess our sin to God understanding that Jesus Christ God's son died to pay for our sin then in believing in Jesus Christ that he died for those sins, for our sinfulness, then we, we pass from death into life. And that's what they call being born again. That's what it means to be a child of God. I am never going to stop saying that. Because that is the sweet story of the gospel. That's the story that trumps all the other stories. It's a beautiful, life-changing story. We've got to remind ourselves of that. You might say, you might be sitting there going, well, Pastor, good night. How many times have I heard that? Well, let me ask you something. How many times did you tell that this week? Is that hitting below the belt? How many times did you tell somebody who doesn't know the gospel the gospel? Well, then we need to revel in the gospel or glory in the gospel more. Now, our sons and our daughters, the biggest problem is, just because they're born into a Christian home, does not guarantee that they are going to have this miraculous work of God in their life. And it's even scarier because if they're born into a home that's Christian or church going and whatever, you can sort of, you know, you can sort of, uh, with your environment, you can sort of inoculate them against the things of God. You know, they get enough religion to stay out of trouble and look half decent, but not enough to really be miraculously converted and delivered from their sin. And God's just telling you here when we talk first about our sons and daughters, we'll talk about this a little bit later. First thing we need to ask ourselves and continue to ask ourselves is, am I sincerely and genuinely converted? And is there evidence in my life that the, that the living God lives in my heart. And then are my sons and daughters genuinely converted? This is not something that we should take lightly or assume that because of a little formulaic prayer, oh yes, I remember praying that prayer so I know I'm saved. We, we, the Bible doesn't say to examine whether or not you're saved. Go back and see if you prayed a little formulaic prayer in the past. The Bible says examine your current life to see the evidence. Examine yourselves, 1 Corinthians says, to see if you are in the faith. Examine your current life and say what evidence is there in my life today that I have the living God 
dwelling in my spirit. Now, when we get to uh, when this passage in Ezekiel uh, chapter 14, it is talking about the judgment of God on a nation and what happens when God's judgment is on a nation. And I want to read this. The word of the Lord came to me again saying, Son of man, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. I will cut off its supply of bread, send famine on it, Cut off man and beast from it. Now, in other words, he says, when a, a, a nation sins persistently against me, I will judge it. And God has a variety of ways of judging nations. This is still happening. Isn't that, God is still the same. This is still happening. Then he says this in verse 14. This is Ezekiel 14, 14. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, these are good guys, right? Noah? Daniel and Job, these are, these are big hitters, okay? These are guys, you know, batting number one, number two, and number three in the batting order. These are, alright, and it says, even if these three men, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, said the Lord. What's that mean? Let's read on. And if I cause wild beasts to pass through the land, and they empty it and make it desolate, so no man may pass through because of the beast, even though these three men were in it, as I live by my life, God says, says the Lord, they would deliver neither, get this now, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters. Only they would be delivered and the land would be desolate. Do you catch that? God says, if I decide to judge a nation, then the most spiritual men in the nation would deliver only themselves and their sons and daughters. There's no guarantee that they'll be delivered during that time. Now, now listen, this is uh, verse 17. If I bring sword on that land and say, sword, go through the land, and I cut off man and beast from it, even though these three men were in it as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, but only they themselves would be delivered. Isn't this the third time he said that? Is America under the judgment of God? I would suggest it is. it is. There is innocent blood running in the streets of America. There is rampant immorality in America. There's a flaunting of our will against God. We've thrown, we cannot pray or talk about God in the schools. We cannot pray or talk about the law of God in the, in the courts. Of all the places where you need God's law, it would be the courts. It's not even rational to dispel God from the courts. And what happened when we dispelled God from the school? The grades went down and the shootings began and the immorality you know, worsened. You know that. And, and that's true even in, in little towns like our own. And then what happened when we dispelled God from the courts? Wasn't it interesting that within was it at least six months or four to six months after they made a ruling, there will be no Ten Commandments at that court? I mean, walked into a courtroom not far away from there, shot a judge in the face and killed him. God says, why does God raise up a pagan land to judge a nation that's been predominantly Christian? That happens all the time in the Old Testament. God always raises up pagan lands. You say, why would, why would God raise up Muslims to judge a, a predominantly Christian nation? You know, the Muslims are disgusted with our immorality. They, they built to their people, it's a, it's a satanic nation. Because, I mean, after all, just look at all their television programs that they all watch all the time. Look at all their movies they all watch all the time. And friends, let's be honest, you, you know, have you guys yourselves seen to it that these television programs and movies are out of your own homes? And these are evangelical Christian guys for the most part we've gathered here. Now, let's be frank about it. This isn't just them. It's us. Our nation is under the judgment of God, which means... Our sons and daughters are not going to live for God unless something miraculous happens. Now, let me just read on. 
If I send pestilence into that land, pour out my fury on it in blood, cut off from it man and beast, even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, says the Lord, they would deliver neither son nor daughter, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. Isn't it interesting that this is repeated now four times? God repeats something four times would be a good idea for us to listen. Then notice what it says. For thus says the Lord, How much more it shall be when I send my force of your judgments on Jerusalem, the sword, the famine, the wild beast, the pestilence, to cut off man and beast from it. Yet behold, yet behold. And I know you shall love these but passages. Yet, you know, yet behold, there shall be left in it a remnant. That means a little group. Okay, a little piece, a remnant. Who will be brought out, and listen to the next words, what's it say? Both both sons and daughters. You you know, when you read that, you just want to say, oh, thank you, Lord. Because I hadn't heard that before. That's the first time that's said there. Four times it says, they will deliver themselves, and not their sons and daughters. And then he says, and there will be a small group, a small remnant of both sons and daughters. And surely they will come out to you. You will see their ways and their doings. And you will be comforted concerning the disaster that I brought upon Jerusalem. Now guys, that's exactly where we are. If, if what I'm saying is right, I'm positive it is. That the judgment of God is on nation of America and we deserve it. Then our sons and daughters. That is why we have an epidemic of young people that are bailing out from the faith. The, the best youth groups in the world. Guy was speaking at suitable colleges this week. My son, who's a youth guy, went and heard him. And the guy got up and he just boldly said, 85% of all the young people in youth groups in America today will no longer be walking with God in five years. They are leaving the faith in droves. Now, there's something seriously wrong. We have an epidemic of youth rebellion. We have an epidemic of, of um, young people are stepping away from the faith and rejecting the faith. And we have more and more of a pagan nation that we live in. That ought to, that ought to make us fearful. And it, you know what we ought to do is we ought to, have, we ought to get on our knees and on our face and plead with God. And I trust that by the time I'm done talking today, that's going to be your inclination. God, please, I beg of you, deliver me and deliver my sons and my daughters and their sons and their daughters so that we could be a part of that remnant from, by which we will be comforted when we see their ways and doings. It is only going to be a minority. And the danger of this, you know, guys know, even in the church, if we just run with the crowd in the world, we know we're in trouble. If we run with the crowd in the church, we're in trouble too. Because it's only a remnant, you see. Now, now that probably you're thinking, okay, thank you, I'm scared to death. Now, how then do I raise sons and daughters who I can offer as an offering to the Lord? You know, when my, when my uh, grandfather was alive, he had these... Uh, Jackets that he called a blanket line wamas. I have no idea how to spell that. You can probably tell from looking at my notes. He called them a blanket line wamas. And what they were was like a, a farmer's chore coat. What do you guys call them around here? A chore coat. Thank you. And you get them, you know, they're, they're great. They wear like iron. And my grandfather had a series of them that he hung on the back porch. He had his shotguns leaned up on the back porch. And then he had a variety of these chore coats hanging up on the back porch. Some of them were lined with flannel. And some of them were unlined and for various times of the year. Well, uh, I can still see him coming in from the milk house with that blanket line wamas with a collar turned up against the wind. And he walked in a unique way. You could tell who he was from a half a mile away when he was walking. My grandfather died in October of 1980. He had been out deer hunting and he was in a, a deer blind, bow hunting, and he got pneumonia and he had congestive heart failure. And he went home to be the Lord. And that's the way he kind of wanted it to be. Uh, he didn't want it to languish, you know. He wanted to do something manly and then 
go to heaven, and that's what he did. And I missed him. You know, when it came time for Thanksgiving that year, he'd only been dead about a month. And we went over to Newark, where he was from, and my grandmother was over there, and all the family was gathered in the house, and all the food was made, and there was just this big hole, this big gap, this big empty place where Grandpa used to be. He was a life of the party. He's a storyteller, and he's a World War II veteran, and a CB diver in the Navy, and I don't know if all that stuff was true, but man, it made great stories. And, and he was a great guy. He's a pastor, and he'd come to the Lord later in life and really taken hold for God, and he was a man of real conviction, and I loved him a lot, and I spent time with him on the farm, and he tried to teach me things, and he probably, by the time he died, he probably thought he'd never really teach me to be a responsible human being. I'm sure that he probably was worried about that. But that day, we all have a family tradition to go out and play football, and, and so we all went out and played football, but it was colder than we thought it was going to be, and a little snow came spitting out of the sky, and my grandmother, as I got ready to leave the house, she said, you should not go out there and play football unless you have a jacket. And I, well, I'm sorry, I didn't bring a jacket. And my grandma says, well, I have one of your grandpa's blanket line wamases. And that wasn't, actually, this one was a, more of a, a coat that wasn't Carter's, and, and it didn't have a lining in it, but she gave me this, I put it on. And went out all day and played football. When I came back in, I took it off. And my grandmother says, why don't you just keep that? Which made me very happy. And so I was, wore that jacket when I go hiking. And it had some nice pockets in it, inside and out. And, and I just always thought about my grandfather. His name was Kenneth Pierpont. That's my name. And so that was really precious to me. I, I enjoyed having that jacket. I'd come in from a walk. And I'd hang on the back porch. And my walking stick under there, you know. And, binoculars if I wanted to do some birding or something, you know, and one day it was kind of chilly and my son Kyle, my oldest son, he's 24 now, he was uh, kind of out in the yard, it was maybe October, it was cool and the leaves were blowing and I said, hey, you ought to put on a jacket. I said, here, try this one in. I handed it to him and he put on that jacket. I thought, oh my goodness, you know. I wish my grandfather was alive to meet my oldest son because they would have gotten along really great. Kyle was the kind of kid I wasn't, you know, responsible and normal and all that stuff. I said, that's your great-grandfather's coat you got on there. That's kind of neat. Guys, does it stir your heart at all when you think about the possibility of a heritage? Most guys waste their life trying to influence people and trying to impress people that really don't really care that much about them. And the very people that they can have a profound and powerful influence on, they neglect in order to go have that influence on other people. And even if you have a moment in the spotlight, people don't really care that much. I realize there will be a circle of influence. Guys, here's what I'm trying to say. All of us have a circle of influence. And that circle of influence is small. It will definitely include your wife, your sons and daughters and so forth, the ones that come from there, and a few others. But God has ordained that it is in that small sphere of influence. And some will be leaders of ten, and some will be leaders of hundreds, and some will be leaders of thousands. But most of us will be leaders of tens, uh, or, or scores. God intends for us to focus our influence on a small group of people. And He intends that to multiply that influence if He wants to. You see, it's not our job to be the big news. It's not our job to make a big splash. It's our job to go deep. To genuinely love God and know God and to deeply touch the people that are close to us, that's really all we have time for anyway. And then for some, if God would give them a far-reaching influence, He can take care of that. 
But if you go try to have this big far-reaching influence, even in the ministry or in your business, you try to make a big name for yourself or you seek money, you are bringing disaster to yourself. And so I want to give you some ideas this morning about how to do this. I, I got so much to say. You know, it can't be in one session. I'll give you some, and then, uh, but, but I can't. And you notice my little notes there. Be what you want them to be. Don't, don't pay careful attention to the order of this because there's probably a better order. But these are just some thoughts. Be what you want them to be. You know, our tendency is to tell them what you want them to be. And that should happen. But it's not going to be effective unless you are what you want them to be, right? So if you want to influence on your sons and daughters, even your grown sons and daughters now, your grandsons and your granddaughters, even, the, even if they're grown, you're not going to do that in a profound way unless you can put your life on them. I was reading my Bible this week about Elijah and how a couple of times there was somebody that died and he put his body on their body. So that would make interesting television on a healing service, wouldn't it? Everybody's like, wow, what's that? You know, he put his body in their body. He laid life to life. He said, my life brings life to your life. Now, my, and this is what we're saying. You have to put your life on another life. And that's how people really learn. You ever notice people often will disregard the stuff you said and they will do what you do. Your sons, you notice that? Maybe your sons or daughters do something that's really irritating to you. And the thing that makes it most irritating is it's what you do. Am I right? You're going, hey, don't talk that way. Just because I talk to your mother that way doesn't mean you can talk to your sister that way. Yeah, yes, it doesn't work, does it? You know what I mean? We were telling, we went to Hinsdale the other night and they had this big town meeting, you know. And those people were all concerned about teenage drinking. I was looking around at these wealthy people thinking, I wonder how many of them don't drink. I mean, for real. They, why could the kids drink? They all got up and kind of laughing. He goes, we're going to try to... One guy, an attorney got up and he said, you know, we're going to try to get our teenagers to, to not do what we did when we were young. And they continue to do. It's like, it's folly. You can lecture kids, uh, you know, until they pass out. And if you... Uh, they're going to be a lot like you really are. Men, the first thing to do is, if you want to influence your sons and daughters, grandsons, granddaughters, your wife and other people, the best way to influence them is not to yell at them, not to preach at them, not to teach them, not to punish them, even though I believe in some of that stuff. The best way to influence them is to show them. Show them. You ever, you ever sent a boy to clean the garage? Hey, go out there. You ever, raise your hand if you ever sent a boy to clean the garage. Oh my goodness, what's going on here? One, two, come on, work with me here. Okay, I, I say to the boys, hey, go, clean the garage. So you send a boy to do a job, right? Go do a job. Well, he'll probably do it, you know. But if, they, if you send two boys, they're likely to kind of horse around, you know. That's just, that's just the way that life is. Now, but did you ever take a boy to clean the garage? You ever notice the difference? It's an exponential difference between sending a boy to clean the garage and taking a boy. I shouldn't even be saying this because if you saw my garage, you'd never want to listen to me again. We moved in in the fall and, and we had a bunch of stuff and the garage just packed with stuff. So in the spring, one of these days, that's not a Men of Moments meeting day, we'll be out there and we'll be working for a long time to bring order to that garage. But, but I've noticed with my sons, if I say, hey guys, come on, let's go clean the garage. They don't have a problem with that. They might just say a little bit, well, yeah, but they don't really mind if I'm there with them. Maybe turn on the radio, listen to some, you know, pregame of the Buckeyes or something like that. And, and that doesn't happen around here. But anyway, and we, and we, and we clean the garage and, and uh, they're okay. They watch me and they can, because we learn that way. P- human beings are made, how did you learn the English language? Did you sit down with a book and study English grammar when you were like three or two? 
How did you learn the English language? You copied your mom. You copied your dad. They said it, you said it. They said it, you. God made us that way. We're all that way. Big people are that way. Little people are that way. We will, you know, we will be like the people that we're with and the people that we admire. Are you listening to me? Your kids will be like the people that they're with and the people that they admire. They will be a composite of those people. And you can be a profound influence on them. So the first little piece of advice is this. Be what you want them to be. My son, give me thine heart and let thine eyes observe my ways. Look at me. Look how I love God. Look how I confess my sin. Look how gently I treat your mother. Look how I grieve when I don't treat her gently. Look how I get up first thing in the morning. And when you come down, I'm always in my chair reading my Bible. I'm always on my knees seeking God. Look at my life. You know, your kids will go, what's up with that? What's he doing? Why is that so important to him? They will love what you love. I know people that say they love Jesus Christ, and they probably do. And they also are like Ohio State football fans. Now, I don't know what weird twist of genetics makes people do that. But anyway, and they're also Ohio State football fans. And their kids grow up, and they reject their God, and they root for their team. Their dad yelled and screamed and hollered about the Buckeyes, and he went to church and he fell asleep on a preacher. You listen to me? It would be a bad time to be drowsy, wouldn't it? But they did. You know, they, those guys, they, they actually showed more enthusiasm, made more investments. They really told their sons and daughters, look at my life. This is what I really love. Now, guys, I'm just telling you, what we want to do is we want to say, oh, God, forgive us for our puny, our, our, our anemic, our weak, our insipid love for God has been so weak. You know, when they see us light up for God and love God with all of our hearts, and that's the thing we believe in the most, and that's what we love the most, that is how we can have a profound influence. And the only way that we're ever going to deliver them from this present evil age in which we live, and I'm talking about young people of guys that are here right now. You might, and I don't know, probably, I don't know, don't know you that well yet, but I know a lot, all of you probably have your own heartaches. And there's already been some heartaches. And, but you, are you, there are, as long as you're alive and your heart still has one pound left in it, one beat left in it, then you ought to have hope for whoever it is that has your name, that you love. You are their lifeline to God as you pray for them. But number one, be what you want them to be. I'm suggesting that you meditate on the scriptures every day. I'm suggesting you walk in holiness. And if you don't walk in holiness, there's one thing I'm discovering more and more as I work with people. And that is, and as I work with this people, me. If I have the secret sins in my life, of anger, lust is the big one, men. A secret sin of lust in my life that I haven't conquered. If I, if I ask you today, don't raise your hand. If I ask you today, how many of you right now would say, I have moral purity. I don't think immoral thoughts about women. I don't act in those moral. Yeah, I wonder how many of us can honestly say that's me. I have. I'm walking in freedom and victory, because if you're not, it's almost like you just take the keys to your sons and your daughters and you hand them to the enemy and you say to them, "You go ahead and do whatever you want to do." You really are. And, and the reason we know that is in counseling with hundreds and hundreds of families and others I know that have counseled with thousands of families, you can always find a direct corollary. When the gate is down, when the wall is down in a man's life, the, the, the enemy will go after his wife and kids and she will have inordinate fears or anger or her own problem with lust. The kids will have problems even you know, within the family, terrible, unspeakable problems. And the guys, the young men won't be... Uh, have moral freedom I'm telling you guys this as a brother I love you I mean this it's just true with me personally I've had to walk this walk 
If you will get thoroughly right with God about the sin of lust, get thoroughly right with God. I'm talking not about going making general, I'm not talking about making general confessions. I'm talking about specific confessions. I'm not talking about general confessions to somebody you know. I'm talking about going to God, going to the people that you offended, and going to the one that you are one with. That's a tough one then the shame of that and the grief of that, that will, 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 will go a long way toward bringing purity to you. And here's one of the reasons why you must do that. If you don't, Satan has permission to go after your kids because you are their protector. Spiritually, you are their umbrella. You are a force field of protection over them. If, um, if the enemy wants to bind, if the enemy wants to spoil the house, what does he have to do first? Bind the strong man. And you are the strong man. How strong are you? Spiritually. It's not important how much you bench press. What's important is, how strong are you spiritually? Where do you stand? And you can get there. So that's uh, the first thing. B, what you want to be. Second, see they're genuinely converted. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Lead them to genuine repentance and genuine faith. We'll have a testimony in our service here tomorrow about that. And those of you that are other churches, um, 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 Maybe I'll tell you later because I don't want to. I want to be a surprise. We'll have a testimony tomorrow in our service about that about somebody who thought they were converted and they weren't. And they and when they understood the gospel, then they got converted and their life changed in a dramatic way. There's nothing more important than seeing to it that you and your wife and every single one of your children are genuinely converted. Jim Dobson from Focus on the Family, he has a thing he's always said to his kids, be there, be there. Meaning when we get to heaven and I look around, I want you to be there. Will you promise me you'll be there? And that's a beautiful word. And that's a big thing in their family. And, and that's what you ought to say. I don't care how much money you make. I don't care how proud you, know, you make the family. I don't care what you do. I want you to be there around the throne of Jesus. So that you and I can kneel together and spend eternity together in heaven. That's one thing that ought to pound your heart. Do your children know that that is more important to you than anything in the entire world? Have you actually talked to them about that? I'll tell you a story that's shocking. There was a man who found it real easy to talk to other people. But he found it really difficult to talk to his own son. And his own son kind of was just really... I mean, carrying on, getting involved with, with women and drinking and rebellion and all kinds of stuff. Finally, one day, he forced himself to take a walk with his son. And the kid's like 22 or 3 or something, maybe a little bit older than that. He forced himself to take a walk with his son around a lake. And he said to him, are you born again? And he began to talk to him about that. And his son got saved. Now, the man I'm talking about is Billy Graham. And the son is Franklin Graham. Now, if Billy Graham had trouble, he's confronted with the entire world with the gospel. On television and radio, millions of people, he's given the gospel. But he found it so difficult to get the gospel to his own son. If that's true with Billy Graham, would you admit it's probably true with you too? So you go through each one of your children and have appointments with them, multiple appointments, and talk with them about their experience of conviction with sin. Ask them specific questions about their own sin. They must be convicted of sin. And don't, don't believe, you, you know, I, I hate saying this, but my son, my oldest son and I are as close as I can. When I, when I married him, I said to him, Kyle, you and I are as close as I can imagine any two human beings ever being, as a father son can be. But you know what? This past week, as we were just sharing, and he's going deeper with God, he told me stuff that I didn't know. I hate saying that. It hurts my pride. But he told me stuff I didn't know. I thought, my goodness, he and I are so close. And it's such an intimate love and fellowship. But he, he told me things I didn't know before. 
And I want to tell you guys, there's stuff going on probably in your own families and with your own children and your own, that you don't even know. And see, you're in a position where you can, you need to know that stuff. You need to know the things that have defiled their conscience. You need to know the things that they've been about. You need to know that pe- how, how people have hurt them. You've got to ask those questions in skillful ways, continuously, to find out what are the greatest hurts of their life. Could you tell me, are you an expert on your family? Could you tell me, these are the greatest fears my oldest son has. These are the greatest fears my next son has. These are the goals and desires he has. These are the greatest moral failures he's had, right here. These are the things he feels most guilty about. I know what they are. And, the, and these are the things that he's really hurt by. You've got to know those things if you want to influence them. And those are powerful things. If you will ask them those questions and love them and invest in them and you know them in that way, you can find those things out. And you can be a powerful influence much more than any pastor could ever be. You can be a powerful influence in their life. See they're genuinely converted. And the way, one of the ways to do that is ask questions that probe their conscience. It's unpopular in our culture to do this. It's like, oh, it's wrong to make people feel guilty. Now think about that. How stupid is that? If a person is guilty, the only way they're going to get rid of their guilt is by repentance and by salvation and by forgiveness. So if you say, don't feel guilty, don't feel guilty, they're never going to get right with God. That just makes no sense at all. Here's what we have made a mistake in the church is we've given the gospel before we've preached the law. And what we need to do is we need to thoroughly break up the soul of the heart by giving the law, giving the law, giving the law, asking probing questions. Are your secret thoughts pleasing to God? Have you ever done anything that you feel guilty about that you haven't made right? Can you tell me what that is? Are you really respectful to your mom and loving to your mom? I mean, is the media that you listen to and the stuff that you watch... Do you think it's pleasing to God? And you, you should be probing your heart first and their hearts with questions like that. Have you ever taken anything that wasn't yours? Right now, do you have something that doesn't belong to you? Have you ever been dishonest in your dealings? Have you ever told a lie and you didn't make it right? Have you ever told me a lie? Is there anything you haven't been honest with me about? Because here's how it works spiritually. I'm telling you, I know this by the, in, in the name of Christ. When your heart is clean and you've confessed your sin, there will be a power on your life. There will be an influence in your life that you never had before. And most of us don't have that. And we may be Christians. That's why we have eternal life, but we don't have abundant life because we don't have the power of God in our life. And we're just all, we're kind of like a shriveled prune of a soul. And we're trying, you know, to make it. And certainly Jesus lives in our heart if we're a believer. But we got all these burdens and and we need to unburden our heart, the sins of our heart. And we do that, more and more we have an abundant and a victorious life. More and more we become a spiritual man. So see to it they're genuinely converted. And see to it you're genuinely converted. A good pastor will not assume that all of his people are genuinely converted. A good pastor will assume that all of his people need to be converted. And then, of course, he won't judge them. You know, when he sees evidence of life in them, he'll recognize that. But I don't want you to be upset with me thinking, well, what's a man think? We haven't heard the gospel? I know you've heard the gospel. You're going to hear a testimony tomorrow that will probably shock you. But anyway, well, that's, that's another day. Then the third thing is win and keep their hearts. Uh, the Bible says there in Proverbs 4, in verse 23, keep your heart with all diligence because out of it are the issues of life. The real issue with your sons and your daughters, your wife too, and your grandsons and your granddaughters is their heart, their innermost person, their spirit, not the stuff you see on the outside. That's all kind of evidence that kind of says what's going on. And so you know what we do most of the time? We badger our kids over external things. 
that, that if we get them to change, their heart is still the same, and there's always going to be other stuff that comes out. You see what I mean? We do that a lot. We want them to look this way and act this way and don't do these things, but we don't address the root issues of the heart. We don't get down deep in the heart. Guys, that's got to happen. Men got to be good at that. They got to be skilled at that. And so, as you're skilled at, with your wife and with your children, with yourself, and getting down at the root issues of the heart, of, of immorality and greed and pride and various things like that, then when you get down to the root issues of the heart, you're going to notice, oh my goodness, look at that. I don't have to bicker with them anymore about their haircut, you know, that I don't particularly like. And they're, well, they got arguments and you argue. And you know, I mean, how many generations of men argue with their sons about haircuts? I, I, I remember all my life, of course I was raised in a pretty shabby age and era there, you know, with the hippie thing going on. But, but how, that happens in music and various other things. We just argue about them and we argue, we badger, we punish or we just give up, right? That's not it, guys. It's Jesus in their heart and knowing they're right with God and their hearts are clean and pure. And when there's argumentation on your home, there's something wrong. You don't want to just go, oh, that's adolescence, everybody goes through it. No, no, don't do that. What most people do is their kids go into judgment. So, so women keep their hearts. Malachi 4, 6, you've heard of that, right? It's interesting because it's a prophetic word. The last prophetic word of the Old Testament. And then there were the years of silence. The very last word of the Old Testament is that is, is God says, I'm going to stop talking and I'm going to go silent for a while. And the next thing you hear is going to be a prophet. And he's going to bring revival. And here's how you're going to know you got revival. Listen to this, guys. He says, I'm going to send a prophet. He's going to bring revival. Here's how you're going to know. I will turn the hearts of the fathers to the sons and daughters. And I will turn the hearts of the sons and daughters to the father. And if that doesn't happen, I will come and smite the earth with a curse. Malachi 4.6 So you see, we're getting at the heart of stuff here. When we have revival, a genuine moving of the Holy Spirit of God, hearts of fathers will be turned to their sons and daughters. I'm begging you to do that today. To take your heart and turn your heart to your sons, to your daughters, to your grandsons, to your granddaughters, and in a deeper way than you ever had before, in a more informed and precise, in a more spiritual way than you ever before. So, number one, be what you want them to be. Number two, see to it they're genuinely converted. Number three, win and keep their hearts. Love them with selfless love. Listen to them with a listening heart, hearing heart. Write them letters. Praise them. Bless them. When they do something good, praise them. When they do something bad, bless them with the quality that they don't already have. And your son's frustrated. How much time do you spend praying for your kids? Where, where is it? If I ask you, where is it you go when you pray for your kids? And how much time do you spend? And what is it that you pray for your kids? Most guys, they have affections for their children and their prayer life is kind of puny. And guys, that's an area right there. Only God can do some of the stuff that needs to be done with our kids. And so we ought to be pouring our hearts out to God. I'll tell you a cool story. Last weekend I'm up north. I think I told some of you guys in the churches. I'm up north and I'm walking around the lake with a guy that I, I admire his dad. He's a godly man. I said to him, when did you realize, excuse me guys that heard me say this already, when did you realize your dad was really an unusual guy? He said, I came down early morning one morning. And my dad was kneeling down by a chair in a room. I went down there and I kind of listened to him pray. He had a picture of the family and I just waited to hear him pray for me. And my dad prayed for me. It's powerful, isn't it? Would your children ever catch you praying for them? Guys, that's what I'm talking about. Let's just confess that, alright? Let's be honest and humble. Let's say, I talk about God, but I don't talk to God. Let's pray for our kids. And we, we praise them to their face. 
And we bless them to their faith. We bless them behind their back. We pray. And we say, God, here's a son who's messy, you know. And we say, Lord, I just pray that you would bless that boy with diligence to, to clean things up so it wouldn't be a burden to his mind. So throughout his life, he'd be orderly and neat in the way he does things. He'd bless him with that kind of a thing. You see a daughter that has a real problem with the way she accepts what God, the way God made her. And you, and you realize that's going to lead her into troubles, you know. And so you begin to pray, God, I, I just pray that you bless my daughter Tabitha or whatever her name is. You know, bless her with, a, a, with the ability to see that you custom made her. And you pray that every day. God, bless her with the ability to see that you custom made her. Help her. And God, you watch. If your heart's right with God and your heart's clear, you're going to see that begin to happen. And so I, I, I pray. If your kids do something that grieves you, that breaks your heart, don't write them off. Don't get angry now. Listen, don't get angry. Just realize you get desperate, but don't get angry. Cry out to God. And our kids are going to disappoint us. They're going to grieve us. Sometimes in horrible ways. And when that happens, you've got to get serious about the things of God. And you've got to cry out to God and plead with God. And don't give up on them, ever. And then teach them diligently. I mean, this is obvious. And you know, Psalm 78. There's a beautiful passage there, and uh, it, well, it's quoted in your your notes there. If you take a look there. Psalm 78, right at the bottom of the page. Give ear, my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable and utter dark sayings of old, which we have known and our fathers have told us. This is the patriarchal pattern. Your dad's the one that tells you the important stuff. You know, mother too. But this is your father's. And then it says, We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord, His strength and His wonderful works that He hath done. For He established a testimony in Jacob, meaning in Israel, in the nation of Israel. He appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born who should arise and declare them to their children that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep His commandments and that they would not be like their fathers a stubborn rebellious generation a generation that set not their heart aright whose spirit was not steadfast with God guys are you are you paying attention to that? is that amazing? that was worth getting up early for just to read Psalm 78 and go, you know, that's my, that's my heart. God, you know, write that down and put that on your mirror. God, I, I'm going to know the reality of the living God, that I have a heart that's steadfast with God. I'm going to know the reality of the living God. I'm going to be able to tell my children stories. That's what I'm talking about. I'll open my mouth in a parable and I will utter dark things of old. I'm going to tell them stories of God's work in the Bible and I'm going to tell them stories of God's work in my life. Can you do that? Can you tell stories of how God provided for you? Can you tell stories of how God protected you? Can you tell, tell stories of how God delivered you? Can you tell stories of how God guided you in your life? Can you tell stories of God's grace and mercy in your life? Can you be honest? You know, some parents make the mistake of making their child, their sinful childhood, look like it was a lot of fun. And the minute their kids get a chance, they go out and do the stuff their dad and mom were kind of bragging about before. That's serious business. Can you tell your story in such a way that you say to your sons and daughters, you know, I have grieved my, my God in my life by doing these things, and that's been the worst thing in my life, and that's broken my heart, and broken your mom's heart, if that was true. And I don't ever want you to have to do that. These are powerful stories, but God, in His mercy, because of Jesus, because of Calvary, He forgave me, and He restored me. That's a story of God's grace. And if you study Psalm 78 real carefully, you'll see that's the outline of Psalm 78. Stories of God's provision, Stories of God's direction, stories of God's protection, 
and source of God's mercy and His grace. You look right through Psalm 78, the one that we just referred to. You're to teach them. Now, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, excuse me, chapter 6 and verse 4, you know that passage that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thy heart. That's lay your life on them. Right? So you love God and you're devoted to the commandments of God. And then it says in verse 7, what? Teach them diligently unto thy children and talk of them when you sit in the house, when you walk in the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. I mean, that just means saturate your entire life with God and the things of God. Talk about it all the time. Teach and train and talk and let God absolutely overcome your entire life. And, 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 and holy affections for God and love for God. You are delighted with God, you see. And then you teach them diligently, rising up early, and however you can do it, always talking about the things of God. You want to say, like Joshua, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. You want to say, like they were able to say about Abraham, was able to command his son, his household, his children, and his household after him that they should keep the way of the Lord. Now, you, don't, you don't do that by badgering kids, right? You know that, right? You can't just command them like you yell at them. But you have to have the moral influence. You have to have, you, you do this by love and conviction. When you have love and conviction, and your, your children and your wife and your children, they know that you will lay down your life for them. You will die for them. You will also give up the remote control. And you will stop doing things that you like to do. Maybe there are some things that aren't particularly wrong, but you set them aside so that you can be them. You, you, maybe you're, certainly will be your schedule. And it will be your own personal comforts. And you will put those things aside for them. They will say, you know, your stock is going to go up. You're going to have more chips in the game, if you will. And that stock's going to rise. And your kids are going to go, that guy loves me. I trust him. I'll do what he says. Then you're able to command your household to follow God. Then you say, we are going to serve the Lord. It's not like because you're a bully. It's because you are a heart, a big, great heart. And they know that man is, is, loves me and he knows what's right. And I admire him and I'm going to follow him as he follows God. That's what you want to work toward. That's what we want to pray for. And this was what God said about Abraham. So teach them diligently. There in Joshua chapter 4, uh, verses 6 through 8. Um, I think I failed to give you that passage. That's too bad. Uh, yeah, it is Joshua 4, 6 through 8. Let me read that to you here. In, in Joshua, you know, after the Lord had done wonderful things, he said, now I want you to set up stones and memorials. And what was the purpose of the memorials? He said, because... They're like little triggers to get your sons to ask you to tell them stories. Little boys and girls love their dads to tell them stories. Young men and women don't mind a good story from dad. And he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to put triggers, storytelling triggers around. What's that, dad? And then when your son asks you in time to come, what do these stones mean? Then you tell them the story. That story ought to pulsate in your heart. You see what I mean? That story ought to grip your heart. Guys, listen to me. We're more, we're more in love with our hobbies than we are with Jesus. And we, and we can't expect our kids to love Jesus if they haven't seen it in us. You know, if we get all, you know, if we get, you know, all sweaty and, and get up early and spend all kinds of money to go bass fishing, which is nothing wrong with that. 
But I mean, if that's a thing that obviously drives us and we get up early and then we, and on Sunday morning we're kind of last minute dragging around or we don't get in the Word and, and they, they see that we don't love that, you know, we go, where's my Bible? I haven't seen it all week. You know, guys think, you're not going to guide them spiritually. Do you really believe in God? Do you really love God? Or do you love other stuff? You know, if you get all hoarse screaming about the bears or whatever and, and, you, and they never see you exuberant in worship, if they never see tears down, trickling down your face when you talk about the great and lofty things of God, how on earth can you expect them to believe that you really love Jesus Christ? I'm not picking on you about hobbies and stuff. They're legitimate. Especially legitimate when we use them to train our family and when we use them to be a witness. If you're going to golf, bring a lost guy with you. You know, Bring your son with you. Great. I'm not talking that that's bad. If you're going to restore a car, that's fine. Help people that don't know the Lord or bring your son out there and do that together and always talk while you're working on that car like this is a classic we treat it right and that's what it is with our soul too you know we need to be careful and diligent and maintain our soul you know that's what I'm talking about that God is a part of everything whether you eat or drink or whatever you do do it all to the glory of God if you go to a basketball game and you look you say it was a great basketball game it was a lot of fun and we go home and we say look at that that gal she scored 20 points I wonder if she knows the Lord she's a precious girl I wonder if she knows Jesus and what's going on you know regarding no man after the flesh we look at the Deeper things, and you teach your sons and your daughters that way, and you tell these stories. Listen to what it says. Um, this shall be a sign among you, verse 6, uh, Joshua 4. You're going to jot that down if you want to. When your children ask you in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? You shall answer that there will be a memorial to your children. Verse 21. Then he spake to the children of Israel, saying, When your children ask your fathers in time to come, what are these stones? Then you shall let your children know. That's the, the point. Isn't it interesting? God made children curious and interested in stories. And I would suggest, you know, we did, do this if you want to. I mean, it's up to you, but years and years ago, we took the TV out of our home. And, and, and now we have like a video monitor thing. And the guys, I think we were watching Bonanza when I went to bed last night. But anyway, we took, the, we took the TV out of our home because it's a pipeline to the world of filth and garbage and trash and false philosophy. We just took it out. And when we did that, what happened automatically was what happened, and again, you do that if you want to. I'm not telling you that the Bible commands whatever. You know, if you, if you can make sure that you never hear anybody blaspheme God's name or commit adultery or break the Ten Commandments on your TV and you can do that, well, you know what? I, I, I retract what I just said. You probably ought to just go ahead and get rid of it. That's how I really feel. There, now I got it off my chest. You probably should just get rid of it. You think about it. I mean, you know, you know, when you do that, then I know it's a shock, but when you do that, then what happens is all of a sudden you got all kinds of time to look at each other like, well, what are we going to do now? Somebody goes to the library, gets a decent book and reads it, you know. Somebody else plays a little music over here. I, we made that decision years and years ago, and I thank God for that decision. Because I don't need any... And the same with the Internet. I mean, I could spend my whole time, you know, on the Internet. So, you got to control those kinds of things. And uh, some of you are sitting there thinking, okay, if I get rid of my TV, are you going to get rid of the Internet? It's like, oh, that's a good question. So you see, um, what I'm trying to get at is that we're not trying to talk about here a legalistic, here are the things you're supposed to do. I hope you're not hearing that. Because I am not saying that. What I am saying is that your kids, there should be things that trigger questions and then you tell stories about Jesus to them. So they see that there's a tear in your eye, there's a quiver in your voice, there's an enthusiasm, there's a, there's a tightening of the pitch of your voice. They can say, Dad is in love with Jesus and I want to be too. And that's something that's valuable. They won't be able to escape that. They won't. And then protect them from physical, moral, and spiritual danger. I could talk a long time on this. 
Beware lest anybody spoil you through vain philosophies. You need to protect your minds and your spirits and your bodies and your kids. Are you protecting them physically? Most of you are. Don't let them get hurt. Make them wear their seatbelt. Tell them to drive careful, you know, because it's dangerous out there. But most guys don't go beyond that. Are you really protecting them morally? Most families are not protecting their children morally. I mean, they're not. You think about the folly of sin. Here you go. Here's the keys to the car. You know, go pick up that girl and make sure you get in by midnight. Have you got any idea in your mind of the kind of stuff that can transpire before midnight if they do make it in on time and they're completely unsupervised? Does that make any sense to you at all? Now you think about this. But that's just really common. We do that. If somebody speaks against it, well, then there's some kind of a weirdo. I, I, I'll tell you this, and I, I say it to my shame, to my grief, and it, it, it hurts my pride. But I have worked hard to guard my children morally. And still, they have found ways to have some troubles that way. i us be honest with you. I worked hard at that. And so what I'm telling you is, that, that's in us. And we have to be extremely vigilant and extremely diligent and extremely careful. And thank God, because I was so careful that a scandal in my home is, is something that, in, in some cases, a scandal in my home in some cases would be something that other people would consider maybe not a problem. Uh, in some cases. In other cases, scandal is a scandal straight up and down. But I'm, I'm just saying, you know, my, daughter, my one daughter, my daughter Holly, she made a vow. I didn't tell her to do this. It was her idea. She did it. I love the vow. But I would never ask her to make this vow. You know what her vow was? She wrote it out on a plaque. She printed it out, put it in a frame, and hung it on her wall. And her vow was never to touch a man until to get to the marriage altar. <laughs> like, oh, wow, that's a, you know, touch a man, you know. And, uh, and so that's serious business. And I said, okay, you know, are you sure about that? And then another one of my daughters made that same vow. That's a serious matter right there. And I thank God for that. Because this scripture says it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And, and then, of course, the, the marriage bed is undefiled. The sexual thing belong in marriage. So that's going to be probably a difficult one to... And a guy might understand, you know, he come along and say, oh, I want to hold your hand. I'm not going to hold your hand until we get married. It sounds bizarre, I know. It's probably just, you know, messing up your, your circuitry. But that's what she decided based on her own personal experience that she needed to do in order to protect herself. It's just what she decided to do. You need to have stuff where you protect your children. We'll talk more about this later because we don't have time. But if you're interested, I can, I, I can, we can go on and on about this and give you all kinds of ideas that will help you to protect your children more. If you're a young man here and you'd like to have moral protection, you talk to me about it, I'll tell you. Let me give you a quick... Nah, I don't have time. Man, I wish I could say this story. Uh, oh, yeah. a, a girl asked her dad for this moral protection after she had had some heartaches in her life. Her dad said, yes, I'll protect you that way from now on. She said, but if you do that, Dad, I don't know anybody in the world who believes that way. That girl is my daughter-in-law now. God directed them together after she made this commitment, after she had heartaches in her life. God, God is so wonderful that way. And then finally, pray for him continually. And I already talked about that. Let me spend the next minute that I have encouraging you to take a look at the family promises of the Bible. Because this is one of the things that I, I want to ask you to do. And number six there, claim the promises of God for the glory of God. Don't pressure them into our conformity so that you look good. Or even to keep them out of trouble. Don't do that. No. Claim the promises of the family. Like this whole sheet is full of family, beautiful family promises. Claim the family promises of God for your sons and your daughters. 
And then I have this sheet. I'm going to give it to you on the way out. It's practical ways to saturate your home with evidence of your love for God. This is a fallible work here. I mean, this is just my ramblings. And you may disregard them. I mean, you, you, you may not. But, it, but what, what I've given you here, and they're up here on the front table. And that is, um, well, let's just go ahead and grab them and then pass them along, if you will. Is, is, I hope you take them along, just kind of read over them. There are some ideas that might make you think of a better idea. But there are ways to set, you know, the Bible says there in Deuteronomy 4, 6, it says that um, you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. In other words, you're supposed to, your whole life is to be saturated with talk about the Lord and love for the Lord. And then your whole house has to be evident. This is a believing family. What's going on here? You know, they've got, you know, the, the mezuzah. When they went through the Jewish house and they went through the doorway, there was something there that would always remind everybody, this is a devout home. And so I, I would suggest you guys do that too. And that is that as you do this, that you saturate your home with memorabilia, with decorations, with really used copies of the Bible. Is Where in your house do you go to pray together as a family? Pray together as a family. You let them hear you pray, or there is no... I have no idea how on earth you will have any influence to deliver them from this present evil age and deliver them unto God if you don't know how to talk to God in front of them. So, uh, I hope you will be tolerant with me. Because I, I feel like I only have a little window, and I want to give you my real heart, and, and I trust say the things that God would have me say. And so sometimes I'm fairly direct, and you may disagree with something, but take it to the Lord and let the Holy Spirit teach you. Um, I'm grateful that you've come today, and I, and I, I love you, man. Mike, would you uh, say a word of prayer to close our meeting? Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you this morning broken.